Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. You've got the home of the truth. Back to The Baldface Truth with John Kanzano on 750 The Game. Our next guest uh, covers recruiting nationally for 24-7 sports. He's on the go. Joining us live via satellite, Brandon Huffman, 24-7 sports. Where are you today, man? I am in beautiful San Antonio for the All-American Bowl, which is on Saturday, and the first of two All-American Bowl trips this month. Give me an idea. When you go to these things, you're getting access to practice, you're watching these kids. What, are, what do you get to see like uh, you know, today? Yeah, so today, you know, you're getting to see day three of practice. You're seeing that for the first two days of uh, guys that are, you know, trying to win the game, i.e. the coaches, doing install on the practices. Now you're seeing those guys put these plays to work and kind of put their game plan together for Saturday because while the players may look at it as an exhibition, these coaches are high school football coaches. They still want to win on Saturday. And so we're seeing that practice going into action before the game on Saturday. The, uh, you know, of the players that you've seen, obviously the game comes along and you get to see it, but, you know, do you get more out of the practice or the games? You definitely get more out of the game because that's at least at full speed. They're fully padded. You know, in years past, there was a lot more physicality involved in the practices. Now it's kind of almost like the Pro Bowl during the week, a lot more guys just in helmets and shells and not really going as full speed as you would normally expect. Maybe as it did 10 years ago, a lot of it's player safety and, you know, let the game kind of be more of the judge. But in years past, we used to get a lot more out of the practices. There'd be a lot more one-on-ones, a lot more, you know, three or seven on seven. Now it's just a lot more install. So the game is really now the highlight. We're talking to Brandon Huffman. Give us an idea. You know, Oregon has a quarterback that I think is down there and, you know, uh, when you look at sort of the recruiting classes, we all hear about it on signing day, you know, but, uh, it, you know, if the Oregon Ducks are kind of looking at, you know, losing Dante Moore, but they end up uh, coming away with a quarterback that they feel really good about, and I'm blank. Novasad is, is the last yeah. name. I was blanking on his name. I don't know why. But give us an idea. You get a chance to see him. What do you think of him? Yeah, I've actually gotten to see him too, uh, each of the last three days. I've been watching the West practice, and, you know, he's got an arm. He can absolutely spin the ball. Uh, you know, he was telling us a, a story earlier in the week about just, you know, when he first met Will Stein, the new offensive coordinator at Oregon, was when he was in seventh grade, and Will Stein was coaching quarterbacks at a high school in Austin, and he went and worked out with him and actually got his second offer from Will Stein at UTSA uh, and then decided that when Will Stein made the move to Oregon that he wanted to go play for him. Wasn't going to go play for the UTSA, but this is a kid that's you know, got some good size to him. Uh, we actually talked about Bo Nix. He said that he's really excited to spend a year working under Bo Nix and learning from Bo Nix and kind of, as he hopes, being taken under his wing so that he can develop under him and you know not be thrown into the fire right away in 2023, but be ready in 2024. And he's eager to spend some time in you don't hear a lot of quarterbacks like that. They want to play right away. He said, I'm still going to go in and compete, but I understand this is Bo Nix's offense, and I want to learn as much from him as I can. When you sort of saw Oregon signing day, Brandon, they you know, they had a really late flurry where they came out looking good, Dan Lanning smoking a cigar, all of that. But 
What uh, what did you make of their success on signing day? Is it an NIL driven thing? Is it Oregon's brand? Is it is it the staff? What's going on there? No, because even before NIL was a factor in recruiting, Oregon has always been that school that did close with a flurry. I think you know maybe a year ago with the departure of Mario Cristobal, kind of the late hiring of Dan Landing, you know, prior to signing day being just a few days away, maybe that was a little bit more of a quiet time, but then they get a guy like Josh Connolly, the number one tap in the country, a couple months later. But we're used to seeing Oregon close really well. They're not a school that you know puts all their eggs in the basket at the beginning of the recruiting cycle. They know when they're going toe-to-toe with a lot of national recruits and it gets a lot of national programs, they're going to have to play the long game. They're going to have to play until February, or they're going to have to play until December. And I think Oregon did a really good job of staying in a lot of key recruitments, and then it became it came to fruition on signing day, and I think they closed with a flurry. And, you know, they still may not be done. Nicholas Harbor, who's one of the top freak athletes in the country, Roger Pleasant, another elite cornerback. Both guys are track and field guys. So Oregon's still in the mix for both those, and they're going to wait until February, so they may not even be done yet. You know, we always talk about coaching, and we we look at X's and O's, but you live in this recruiting world. Um, as you look at the Pac-12 conference, just the staffs in general, some places probably are more conducive to, you know, having more success with recruiting. I'm sure if you are you put a great recruiter in a great situation like USC or Oregon or somewhere else, they're, they're going to have success. But what did you see, by and large, across the conference on, on that early signing period? You know, surprisingly, it's been interesting because you have the schools that you expect to recruit well, the the USC, the Oregon's. You have Washington, which historically had recruited well, other than the transition year under Jimmy Lake. You had Chip Kelly, you know, showing like he did at Oregon where he could go out and get a top player in the country, even though the class may not have been big at large. But now we're starting to see Utah really start to establish themselves as a top 20, top 25 recruiting program. Instead of being the, the school that develops and evaluates the guys really well, maybe being in the 40th and 50th range, now they're benefiting from back-to-back Pac-12 championships, and they ended up with the top 25 class. We're seeing Oregon State, who relied so heavily on JUCOs, so heavily on the transfer portal early on in John Smith's career, now only getting maybe one or two guys from the JC ranks, getting a couple guys out of the portal, but now realizing that this is his program, this is his team, this is the guys that he's developed, and not relying so much on immediate help, but now being able to bring some guys in to develop them and then maybe be a little bit more picky and choosy. And then the surprising part is, with one of the best classes I've seen come from the Bay Area in maybe a decade, Cal finished dead last in the Pac-12, and that's a little bit weird. We're not used to seeing Cal have that much disappointment in the recruiting, but this year was a tough year for Cal recruiting-wise. What can Cal and Stanford do to, to keep pace in the conference? Well, you know, even today, Cal got a commitment from J.T. Byrne, who's a former Titan at Oregon State. He's from Northern California. Cal's going to have to play the portal game hard because they're losing guys to the portal. J. Michael Sturdivant has been the best recruit that Justin Wilcox ever signed. Very productive his first two years, but he goes into the portal yesterday. So Cal's going to have to continue to rely on the portal. Stanford needs to get into modern times. The reality is that they've only gotten one, before this year, they've only gotten one player from the portal ever he actually walked onto the program, got into grad school on his own. But Stanford has got to be a school that's going to be willing to get into the portal game. They've got endowment money that is going to last them a lifetime. They have the potential to use it for NIL, but I don't know that Stanford is choosing to. So they're going to have to get modern with NIL, and they're going to have to get modern with allowing the transfer portal to help them. Otherwise, they're going to keep losing 16 to 20 guys every year and not be able to backfill those spots. Oregon State uh, brings in uh, DJ Uyengalele, and uh, Oregon gets Mateo. 
Um, we've talked a lot about those two guys. Can you talk about DJ just a little bit and what you think he will do and how he fits with Jonathan Smith at Oregon State? I think it's a great match. I think Jonathan Smith is, is kind of a quarterback whisperer, if you will. He's a guy that's going to be, you know, calm with with DJ. There's not going to be that. There's going to be some pressure on DJ because he's going to be a high-profile target, but nowhere near the pressure that he underwent at Clemson. And you know, if you look at DJ's stats in a vacuum, he actually had a pretty good career at Clemson. But when you have Trevor Lawrence and Deshaun Watson preceding you, and the success those guys had winning national championships then maybe compared to those guys, it doesn't look great. But he also had dealt with multiple offensive coordinators, the much less receiver talent, a horrific offensive line compared to what Deshaun Watson and Trevor Lawrence had. Now that change of scenery could be the best thing in the world that ever happened to DJ. And I really think he's going to flourish under Jonathan Smith because I think personality-wise, Jonathan Smith's going to be the guy that's going to be much more calm, much more collected. And I think that's what DJ needs, just a different voice in his ear, a different change of scenery, and something that's going to allow him to become the player we all have seen him be at some point in his high school career. Yeah, and I think it's interesting, too, because he won't, in that offense, they're not asking him to come in and carry that thing. Like, it, it, it pretty much ran, I don't want to say it ran without a quarterback, because that would be disrespectful to Ben Gulbranson in what he did as a freshman, but it, it you know, it's not quarterback-centric if it doesn't have to be, but I'm really curious to see what it's going to look like with a guy who's got, you know, some extra skill set. With the other thing that I think people don't understand is just how bad Clemson's offensive line has been the last two or three years. Even with Trevor Lawrence's last year, when Clemson made it to the playoffs, when DJ actually took over for a game for Trevor Lawrence when he had COVID and almost beat Notre Dame on the road, that line started to show signs. And then if you watch the Clemson-Georgia game in the opener last year, Yes, it was a generational defense for Georgia, but you started to see some big leaks on the offensive line for Clemson. So he spent the last two years essentially running for his life when we're used to Clemson having dominant offensive lines. Now he comes to school with one of the best evaluators and developers of offensive line talent in the conference, and maybe not just in the conference, but in the country, in Jim Mahalchuk. Now he's going to have time to sit his feet. Now he's going to have time to be patient in the pocket. Now he's going to have time to go through his progressions, things that he didn't really have a chance to do at Clemson. Dante Moore is at the All-American Bowl. How much are you getting to see of him, and what did you make of him flipping to UCLA? Well, I thought it was interesting because, you know, when you see an elite top-tier quarterback flip to a school in the Pac-12 in Los Angeles, it's usually USC. So, you know, at once, I think when you look back at Chip Kelly historically, when he flipped Anthony Thomas from USC to Oregon, or the next year when he got Eric Armstead, he does have a history of maybe getting one elite player every couple of years. So that wasn't his form. But for UCLA to be so out of the mix to then Dante Moore deciding, hey, this is the place I want to be. Obviously, Caleb Williams' impact in Los Angeles certainly didn't hurt, but he's been every bit as advertised. He's the highest-rated player here, highest-rated uh, quarterback in the game. And on Tuesday after – or on the Wednesday after the second day of practice, it was clear he had separated himself as the top quarterback there now, Oregon State fans get excited. Aiden Childs is probably been the second-best quarterback here, but Dante Moore has definitely lived up to the hype, and he's been really the true alpha dog here at quarterback. Brandon Huffman with us, 24-7 Sports. He's the national recruiting editor. I know we have talked over the years about your daughter, Avery. You've got a seven-on-seven -seven tournament that is happening in February. Uh, first, let, can you tell our listeners a little bit about Avery and what she went through and, and kind of, you know, how you're keeping her legacy alive. Absolutely. I appreciate that opportunity. In 2015, on June 30th, 
Uh, we were given a diagnosis after what was a normal, you know, six and a half years where no health issues at all. Uh, an inverted eye, which we thought might have just been affecting her vision, turned out to be a terminal brain tumor that took her life seven and a half months later. She was able to go through radiation, through a number of different infusion treatments, but ultimately succumbed to the disease. Three, she passed away on February 16, 2016. By the end of June, uh, we had established the Avery Huffman DITG Foundation. In, in just under seven years, we've raised nearly a million dollars uh, for research, for doctors around the world. Over 30 hospitals around the world have been able to uh, benefit and do different projects based on her tumor that we donated to research, but also the funds that we've raised for hospitals to be able to do this research in. We're seeing a big impact and a big difference in the treatment plans for children that are going through brain cancer, including at Seattle Children's Hospital, which is one of the places where we donated her or her tumor to. And so we're able to see the action being put into works, and now these kids are able to have an extended life and more treatment opportunities that she didn't get when she was diagnosed. So even though she wasn't here to maybe get the, uh, the end result we were hoping for of finding a cure, we're now seeing doctors being able to do many things that could allow other families that if they ever are given this diagnosis, they have better options and longer-lasting treatment plans. You know, Brandon, I appreciate you. You're a normal uh, you know, you're a dad, you're, you're a regular person, and, you, you know, you happen to do this sports job. But, you know, I, I'm on the website right now, and I'm going to encourage our listeners to go there, AveryStrongDIPG.org, uh, the Avery Huffman DIPG Foundation. Uh, you can make a donation there. You can find out a little bit about Avery. Um, I'm telling you, I got glassy eyes right now, Brandon. You know, I, every time we talk about this, I have three daughters. And, uh, you know, I commend you for the strength that you and your family have in, 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 in keeping her mission alive and, and continuing to do stuff. I know the event, it's a seven-on-seven -seven event, and it's going to raise some money. But if people just want to make a donation, you can go to AveryStrongDIPG.org to make a donation. You can do it now do it during the break. Brandon, I appreciate you joining us uh, as you do often, and keep, keep up the good work. Thanks so much, Don. Thanks for letting me share about Avery. I appreciate that so you, much. You bet. Uh, I'd rather talk about that than football anytime. Uh, Brandon <laughs> Huffman, thank you, man. Uh, good stuff. Look, I'm literally on the website right now. I'm going to make a donation during the commercial break. And, you know, I didn't plan on doing this. I didn't plan on, you know, I, but I've known about, you know, I've known Brandon from a distance for many, many years. And we've brought him on the show over the years. And, I, you know, I know when he talked about Avery just a couple of years ago, um, you know, you could tell. You could tell when he's talking about a prospect and a player, and then we start talking about his daughter. And, and I would challenge you to go to that website, and I would challenge you to look at her photograph and, and not be moved just by seeing that little girl and that smile and to think about the loss that that family suffered and the legacy that they're trying to create in helping other people. Again, it's AveryStrongDIPG.org. That's the website. Check it out. We'll be back. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face hey, Sorry to interrupt the podcast, but if you want to listen to more of the Bald Face Truth Radio Show, including more of this segment that you're listening to, make sure you subscribe on SoundCloud and iTunes to the Bald Face Truth Radio Show. Thanks for listening.